thank you so much, ladies, and uh, it's good to have you guys back. Abby and Hayden, we miss you guys, but uh, it's good to see you, and uh, thanks for coming back for the visit. I know mom and dad are glad to have you home, so uh, anyway, that was a good uh, jump start for Christmas, wasn't it, that song? Uh, God with us, Emmanuel, uh, that really encapsulates caps, uh, what Christmas is all about, God coming from heaven to earth in the form of his son Jesus in that Christ child. And uh, as we uh, are all battling with the, what they call the Christmas creep, right? Uh, people are already selling stuff for Christmas and setting up Christmas decorations. We haven't even celebrated Thanksgiving yet, right? Let us get past Thanksgiving and then, right? But really Christmas is something that we should celebrate all year round. And uh, hopefully that will be a good uh, song to uh, be uh, resonating in our mind, uh, echoing in our hearts as we move into the Christmas season to remember what it's all about. Well, last Sunday, I preached a message uh, titled Identity Crisis, Remembering Who We Are in Christ. And I received a lot of positive feedback and have had some stimulating conversations with a number of you this week, which confirmed in my mind that this is a very relevant, very practical subject. Uh, it's it's uh, something that I know I need to be reminded of on a daily basis because I seem to uh, allow so many other things to define me and I find my identity in so many other things other than who I am in Christ. And so uh, I wanted to recommend uh, a couple of books that if you wanted to dive deeper into this subject uh, of our identity in Christ, uh, you might want to write these down. Uh, Jerry Bridges has written a great little book called Who Am I? Identity in Christ. And you know Jerry Bridges is always good uh, with anything he's written. And so I would encourage you to consider getting that little book, Who Am I? Identity in Christ by Jerry Bridges. For you ladies, there's a, a great book out there called Identity Theft, Reclaiming the Truth of Who We Are in Christ. And this is uh, uh, several ladies got together and wrote this a book. Um, I think uh, Kathy and some of the other gals went through it um, maybe a summer or two ago, uh, but Identity Theft, Reclaiming the Truth of Who We Are in Christ. And then uh, I mentioned that movie last week, Overcomer, by the Kendrick Brothers, and they have an, um, uh, an accompaniment uh, Bible study, a uh, companion Bible study, I should say, to the movie called Defined, What God Says You Are, uh, by Stephen and Alex Kendrick. So that's uh, Defined, uh, who God says you are. So again, just some uh, resources that you might be uh, helped by. And uh, I don't know that any of those are available in our resource center, but you could always go on Amazon and get those or wherever you get your books. But um, one of the books that I've been reading recently with another guy in the church is called Lost in the Middle. And uh, it's uh, by Paul Tripp. And it talks about the grace of God or midlife and the grace of God. And uh, really, it's a book about our identity in Christ. And uh, this is uh, something that I highlighted uh, as we've been reading together. He said this, uh, you and I are always living out some sense of identity. The way we answer the who am I question will have a huge influence over all that we say and do. God wants you to know who you are and to live out the practical implication of the identity he has given us in him. This is why scripture is constantly telling us who we are. And I mentioned last week that the clearest explanation in scripture of who we are in Christ 
is found in the book of Ephesians, particularly in the first three chapters where Paul uh, laid out our, uh, our position in Christ or who we are as believers. And last week we did a quick survey of chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and simply observed what God says about who we are in Christ, that we are blessed, that we are chosen, that we are holy and blameless, that we've been predestined, we're adopted, um, we've been forgiven, we've been redeemed, uh, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Well, this morning I want to go back to the book of Ephesians to look at what Paul went on to say in chapter 2 about who we are in Christ, namely that we've been made alive in Christ. In uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, what we looked at last week, Paul was just giving a, a general explanation of God's plan of salvation, how we were elected by the Father, how we were redeemed by the Son, how we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 15 through the end of chapter 1, Paul described the prayers that he prayed for the believers in Ephesus, that they would fully understand and utilize the incredible blessings that they have in Christ. All of these things that are true of us, the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, the greatness of his power, uh, that they would realize those things and they would put those things into practice. And then when he gets to chapter 2, in the first seven verses here of chapter 2, Paul gave more of a specific explanation of God's process of salvation. In other words, what he did, how he did it, and why he did it. And again, this is, uh, I assume, a familiar passage to most of you, uh, but this is one of those jugular texts, as one of my seminary professors referred to, those passages in Scripture that are just extremely important, extremely essential. And this would be one of them. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for this a mega text. This is such an important uh, portion of your word. And I pray that uh, your spirit would illuminate our minds now to understand uh, what Paul meant by what he said here and how it applies to our lives. Lord, we thank you that, that ultimately our identity is in Christ and not in what we think of ourselves, what others think of us, what the world says of us. But Lord, it's in what this passage says. And so, Lord, would you grant us grace to 
make application of this to our lives, we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. Again, I thought this was an appropriate passage for us to focus on today as a follow-up for what we talked about last week, but also to prepare our hearts as we anticipate Thanksgiving this week. Because uh, I don't know what your family does when you gather around the table on Thursday, but uh, typically what we do is we uh, talk about, we share what we're thankful for. We go around and we we just talk and share the things that uh, we're most grateful for. And I think of all the things that we as Christians have to be thankful for, the greatest thing is that we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive now in Christ. And so if anyone asks you this week what you're most thankful for, I dare you to say this. Just, just say this. Just say, you know, I'm just thankful that I'm alive. I'm just thankful to be alive. Now, that's a familiar expression that we often hear Someone say after they've been rescued from some disastrous situation or, or they survived a near-death experience or, or, or maybe they're battling a life-threatening disease, they, what, what do they say? Well, I'm, I'm just thankful to be alive. Now, you may have never experienced a, a disastrous situation, a near-death experience. You may have never battled a life-threatening disease. But from a spiritual perspective, whether you realize it or not, all of us are battling a life-threatening disease. It's called what? Sin. And we're facing certain death. And we'll spend eternity in hell unless we're rescued by God's grace and mercy. And here in the opening chapters, or excuse me, me, the opening verses of chapter two here, Paul essentially explained the doctrine of salvation, how we are saved by God's grace. And I find it interesting that In the original language here, verses one through seven are just one long sentence. And it might be easy to miss that in the English translation here, but essentially there's one subject. Every sentence has a subject and a verb, right? If you go back to junior high grammar class, you've got a subject and a verb. And so the subject of this sentence that goes on for seven verses is God, and the verb, the main verb, is made alive. So really, you start in verse 4. God, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. That's the essence of this text. You may want to underline God there in verse 4, and then made us alive together with Christ in, in verse 5. Everything else supports that concept of God making us alive in Christ. And specifically, verses 1 through 3, Paul explained what it means to be dead in sin. And Paul knew that we couldn't truly comprehend and appreciate what it meant to be alive in Christ, unless we understood the awful condition that we were in and would still be in if God's grace hadn't acted on us. And that's why he began by describing what we were like before we were saved. 
And he led his readers on a horrifying walk through the spiritual graveyard of lost souls and lets us come face to face with the grisly, ghastly spiritual zombies that we once were. When I was growing up, zombies were rarely talked about. They were the kind of stuff of B, B-rated horror movies, right? But it seems like in our generation now, it's just like there's this popularity of the zombie thing. And there's movies about zombies and there's television shows about zombies and everything zombie this, zombie that, video games about zombies. There's zombies everywhere. And it's hard to imagine anything more gross, more hideous, more disgusting, more downright nasty than a zombie. You can't help but have seen one somewhere on TV or in a commercial or something. But I would submit to you that there is something more gross, more hideous, more disgusting, more downright downright nasty than a zombie, and that is you and me before we were saved. Because nothing is more hideous, more horrifying, more grisly, more ghastly than an individual living in a state of sin. And in these first three verses of Ephesians 2, Paul graphically described the zombie-like state of every one of us apart from God. This is one of the clearest descriptions of man's sinfulness found anywhere in the Bible. And here we see what theologians call or refer to as the doctrine of total depravity, which, which means that every human being is totally and completely corrupted with sin. Sin has affected every facet of our existence, our body, our mind, our emotions, our conscience, our will, and has rendered us completely helpless. Another term for total depravity is total inability. And there's no other word that you could use to describe the idea of depravity or inability than the word dead. Paul says, and you were dead. And in the Greek, that word means dead, just so you know. And again, Paul obviously was not referring to being physically dead because we are still very much alive. Uh, He used this word as a metaphor to describe the lost condition of men. So he's talking about the fact that we are not literally dead, we are spiritually dead. Spiritually, we are completely incapable of responding to God. We are totally insensitive and unreceptive to God. We, we simply do not and cannot respond to spiritual stimulus of any kind. We are a spiritual corpse, as it were. I'll never forget, as part of my seminary training, I had to take a class on hospital chaplaincy um, just to kind of learn how to navigate a hospital, knowing that, you know, I'd be going there quite often to visit folks. And so one of the things that our teacher wanted to do was to expose us to the worst possible scenarios so nothing would ever surprise us. And so he scheduled a visit to witness an autopsy. And I'll never forget this. I mean, this was a 
I still can see it like it was yesterday, standing outside of the autopsy room, looking through the glass window while these guys in white coats performed this autopsy, and they were using all sorts of tools, like they had a power saw, they had a hammer and a chisel, and, and they were, I mean, they, they were going at it with this body, and guess what? That body didn't say a thing, didn't move an inch. Um, listen, if you come close to me with a power saw, I'm saying something, Okay or a hammer and chisel to go after my skull. I'm going to say something, right? Well, this, this body, of course, was dead. It was, it was, it was a corpse. And, and, and you could do anything you want to a corpse, and it won't respond. Dead people can't do anything but lie there. So from a spiritual perspective, none of us can make a single move toward God until he brings us back to life. We're not just sick. We're not just passed out. We are dead. The question is, how did we die? What killed us? Well, sin did. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And this is not talking about a cessation of life, the end of life. It's talking about a separation from God. And we know sin entered the human race when the first two human beings disobeyed God in the garden. God told Adam and Eve, uh, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of, of good and evil, you shall surely what? Die. Now, when they did eat of that fruit, did they drop dead instantly? No. But they did experience immediate spiritual death. They were separated from God. They went into hiding. And by this one sinful act, they plunged the entire world into sin when they died, we died. And we too were separated from God. You say, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. I wasn't there. It's not my fault. Well, have you ever seen football players get upset and protest when one of their teammates um, gets called for a holding? You know, and they, they all get, the whole team gets petted. The whole team has to go back 10 yards, right? Well, that's just the way it is. Well, one player steps offside and, and, and the whole team is penalized. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. So it's like every one of us was standing there sinning along with Adam and we're all just as guilty of that sin as he was and deserve to be punished in the same way he was. And the fact that you and I sin every day proves that. So notice verse one, and you were dead in by reason of or because of your trespasses and sins. Paul uses two words here to describe sin. The first word is trespasses. And the idea here is that we have deliberately strayed off the path that he set for us. We defiantly crossed the line in the sand. We went outside the boundaries that God has marked out for us. He put up no trespassing signs, right? And, and we disregarded them. And so we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is the common word for sin in the Greek hamartia, which was a hunting term used to describe an arrow missing 
or falling short of the target. And so spiritually speaking, all of our, our thoughts and words and deeds fall short of God's standard of perfection. That's what Romans 3.23 means. For all have sinned and fall, what? Short of the glory of God. And so when you combine these two words, you've got trespasses and sins. It really provides a comprehensive understanding of both the active and the passive elements of sins. There are, there are the, the, there's what we call sins of commission, and there are sins of omission. Sins of commission are the things that we commit, the things that we do that we shouldn't do. The sins of omission are the things that we omit, the things that we don't do that we should do. And so the idea here is we are dead because we are both rebels and failures. We're both. And it doesn't matter how physically fit you may be or mentally alert or morally upright or kind or generous. The Bible says that before Christ, you were dead. And not only were we dead in sin, but we were dominated by sin. And so Paul went on in verses two and three to get even more specific about what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. He revealed the forces that control a spiritual zombie and caused, caused us to act the way we acted. There, there are basically three forces that seek to control every one of us. We, what are they? The world, what? The flesh and the devil. And Paul highlighted all three of these forces and showed how before we were saved, we lived in bondage to them. So first of all, we were dominated by the world. We were dominated by the world. Notice verse two, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. That word walked, of course, is the word for lived. It's a description of our behavior, our conduct. He said we lived our lives according to the course of this world. We lived our lives based on the standards of the world. We simply went along with the flow of the rest of the world. We thought like the world. We acted like the world. We did and said whatever everyone else was doing or saying, whatever we saw on TV, whatever we watched in the movies, whatever we read about in the newspaper or magazines, whatever we saw on the internet, what we heard on the radio. We just simply adopted the world's value system and embraced the world's philosophies and perspectives and priorities. We were totally wrapped up in the world and felt perfectly at home. So we were dominated by the world. We, we lived according to the course of this world. Secondly, though, we were dominated by the devil. We were dominated by the devil. Notice this. He says, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That phrase, the prince of the power of the air, is a reference to the devil, Satan, who is the evil dictator over the entire world system. He rules over the earth. You say, wait a minute, I thought God ruled over the earth. Well, he does. But God has temporarily granted Satan permission and some level of power and authority to rule over the world. Jesus described 
Satan in John 12, 31 as the ruler of the world. Paul called him in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world. And in 1 John 5, 19, it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so before we were saved, we were like marionettes. You ever seen a marionette, right, on the string? And, and, and we were controlled by Satan. We were dominated by Satan. And with the help of, of his demonic minions, he succeeded in controlling um, and has succeeded in controlling the spirit of the age. That's the idea there. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So there's this, the spirit of the age. We talk about the spirit of the age. What's, what's the mindset of the world? Influences and inspires people to live in rebellion against God. That phrase, sons of disobedience there, that's a Hebraic expression. In other words, in the Hebrew when that was used, something like a son of something, being a son of something meant you are characterized by something. And in this case, Paul says the chief characteristic of our lives was disobedience. We habitually rebelled against God. And so before we were saved, we were under Satan's sway. We were held captive by him to do his will, like it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. So we were dominated by the world and dominated by the devil, but also we were dominated by the flesh. Notice what it says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We can't blame our sin on Satan and the world. They simply provide the fuel to the fire of our flesh. It's like the little girl who got in trouble for kicking her brother and pulling his hair and her mom was reprimanding her and so she was trying to defend herself and confess at the same time and she said, well, mommy, Satan made me kick him but pulling his hair was my idea. So he says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, our flesh craves sin and is consumed with gratifying itself without constraint. And before we were saved, our actions, our thoughts were governed by the selfish impulses and desires of our flesh. We were enslaved to sin. All we wanted to do was sin, and all we could do was sin. And as if it couldn't get any worse, not only were we dead in our trespasses and sins, not only were we dominated by the world and the devil and our flesh, we were also doomed. Notice what he goes on to say in verse three. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were objects of divine displeasure. Again, the word wrath there, children of wrath. Wrath is not something that we like to talk about these days. Right? It's not something that's brought up very often, but it's a very important 
word in the Bible, basically how I would define wrath is simply this, God's settled disposition and resolute action against sin. God's settled disposition and resolute action against sin. In other words, how God feels about sin and what God must do about sin. God hates sin and he must punish sin. Why? Because sin contradicts his character. It violates his word. It distorts his image in us. It spoils his creation and it damns us to hell. I think these are all very good reasons for God to be mad at sin and want to judge it. And the ultimate judgment or punishment for sin is for us to be separated from God for all eternity in hell. And that's where all of us deserve to go, not just because of what we've done, but because of who we are. Notice he says we are by what? Nature, children of wrath. We are innately sinful and evil. Sin is not something that we learn. It's something that we are born with. Human beings are not inherently good. We're not born neutral like some say that we're some blank slate and everybody in our lives writes on us, our parents and our siblings and our society and that determines who we become. No, we don't become sinners When we sin, we sin because we're sinners. Sin is who we are. We were, you could say we were born DOA. We were born dead on arrival. We were conceived in sin. And uh, by the way, this description of mankind is all inclusive. No one is left out. Notice he said, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. No one's left out of this description, okay? This is not just the condition of the terrorist, the mass murderer, the pedophile, the prostitute. This is the condition of the entire human race. Even some of you precious young people who have been born and raised in a Christian family and you've been coming to church your entire life and You've never really done anything that bad, right? This description applies to you too. All of us were, right, completely dead to God, helplessly dominated by sin, and hopelessly doomed for help. What a horrifying position to be in. And by the way, if you are not a Christian, that is the position that you're in. This is a description of not what you were, but what you still are. But see, Paul knew that if we weren't truly horrified at who we were and what we deserved, that we will never truly appreciate what God did to save us. And that's, that's why he bursts forth here. Finally, finally, he bursts forth in verse four, but God, which, are, which is one of the most significant dramatic transitions 
anywhere in the Bible. I don't know if you ever did this, but I'm admitting this. I'm not encouraging this, especially you young people. Don't do this. Don't, don't try this at home, okay? But when I was younger and I'd go out with my buddies, you know, and we were driving at night. Sometimes, you know, we'd be driving down some old country road and, and uh, back in Massachusetts and I'd, you know, turn the lights off in the car. And we, we'd, we'd just kind of see how long we could go before somebody freaked out. Right? Just how far can we go until somebody screams, turn them back on? Because you're just driving in the, in the dark, right? You can't do that these days with the kind of cars, the lights come on automatically. And I've tried to figure out how to do it for my family, but they're probably thankful I don't do that when I got everybody in the car. But uh, the, the point is, that, that's kind of what Paul was doing here. He, was, he, he flicked the headlights off, and we're just driving through the dark. And he's like, finally, we're like, Paul, turn the lights back on. And he does. He flips them back on with this expression, but God. And he shows us how God graciously intervened to rescue us from this helpless, hopeless condition that we were in and how he radically transformed our lives. And the question is, what motivated God to save us from this situation? And and how did he do it? How did he save us? And why did he do it? And these are the questions that Paul answers in the next four verses here. And the first thing he addresses is God's motivation. God's motivation, verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. So we have some attributes here of God some things we know to be true about God that, that were what motivated him. The first thing he mentions is his mercy. But God being rich in mercy, in other words, his mercy was out without measure. It's unlimited. It can't be exhausted. It's, it's rich. And, and mercy is his, his compassion, his pity. It, it's, it's seeing someone in need and, and having a desire to relieve them. Some of you have the gift of mercy. You see somebody in a difficult situation and your heart just goes out to them and you want to meet their need. You want to help them. And we know that mercy, a simple definition of mercy is is not getting what we deserve, right? We deserve God's wrath and justice, but instead he gave us what we don't deserve. He dealt with us in in love and grace, and that's the second attribute here, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. For God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John three sixteen, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He says it was because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, verse 5. Paul's just saying, hey, just, just in case you forget, just want to remind you, okay? Don't, don't think there was, don't, don't think for a second that there was anything in you that made you lovely to God. You were a spiritual zombie that was repulsive to God. That's how Paul describes us in Romans chapter five, when he was talking about the love of God, that we were still helpless and ungodly. We were enemies 
But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, remember he said, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God, on the other hand, demonstrates his own love for, towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul was intimating there that it would make sense if God loved us because we were his faithful friends, his loyal servants, but that's not what we were. We were his enemies. We were, his, we were rebels who had greatly offended him. That there was nothing in us, absolutely nothing that attracted him to us, only that which repelled him. And consequently, it was something in God himself that moved and motivated him to reach out and save us. And it was his great love, his infinite love, his indescribable, unbelievable, profound love. Remember that. It was not something in you that motivated him to save you. It was something in him. And so we see God's motivation. We also see God's intervention here. And again, notice the things that, that God did here. Paul listed three things that God did when he saved us by his grace. He said we were made alive, he made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So first of all, he regenerated us. He made us alive. God brought us back to life because we were what? Dead. And so he breathed life into us. The Holy Spirit breathed into our soul, caused us to be born again. We sprung to life. The Holy Spirit caused us to be sensitive to the things of God, enabled us to understand and respond to God. He freed our will so that we could be repentant. We could believe in Christ this is what we know as regeneration. And again, notice Paul couldn't wait to say this, but he gives this little parenthetical statement, by grace you have been saved. In other words, our faith in Christ is a gift granted to us by God's grace. This was Paul's favorite summary of the gospel, which he later developed in verses eight and nine. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not, as a, result of, not a result of works so that no one can boast. So he regenerated us, number one. Number two, he resurrected us. He raised us up with him. So God resurrected us, spiritually speaking, just like he did Christ, we were declared victors over sin, death, and hell. We're no longer under God's wrath, and there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ. So we've been regenerated, we've been resurrected, and we, we have also been exalted. Notice he said, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has placed us, spiritually speaking, right next to Christ. We share in Christ's position of authority over all things. We also share in his position of intimacy with the Father. Now, physically, we're all still sitting here, right? But spiritually, we are in heaven seated at the right hand of God with Christ. This is our position in Christ. This is who we are in Christ. But notice verse 7, because this is where Paul 
explains God's intention. What, what was God's ultimate aim? What was his goal in all of this? Notice he says, so that God, this is again the, the sentence, God made us alive so that. That's the main point of this passage, right? So that. This is the purpose. This is the reason. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating that God didn't save us just to keep us out of hell and not even to grant us eternal life in heaven, as great as all that is, God has a much greater goal in saving us, and that is to glorify himself. Salvation is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. And in Ephesians 1, we looked at that last week. Three times, Paul says that this is all, all these things are ultimately to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace to the praise of his glory. So he says, so that in the ages to come, in other words, from now until all eternity, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That word show means to demonstrate, to put on display. Interesting, it's in the, it's, 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 it's what's called an heiress middle tense here in the original language, which means the subject acts in his own interests. You're not going to like this. It's not going to sound right to your ears. But basically what Paul was saying here is that God did this so that in the ages to come, he might show off. He might show off. And by the way, God's the only one in the universe who can show off and it be okay. And the cool thing is here, he shows off through us. The moment we get saved, we become a living, breathing display, exhibit, billboard, trophy, you fill in the blank, of God's grace. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. That word grace is God's unearned and undeserved kindness and favor towards helpless and hopeless sinners. Someone has said, you could remember it this way, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, grace is all that we get that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And so God's purpose in saving dead, depraved, damned sinners like you, like me, is so that throughout eternity, we would marvel and praise and glorify him for his amazing grace. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this and our, the appropriate response. Somehow in the course of raising our three kids, we wound up with three dogs. 
you might have a similar experience in your house, right? One of, the, one of our dogs is a, is a miniature Australian shepherd named Shadow, and he's a rescue dog that we got from our neighbor who volunteers at the local pound. And he is the happiest, most playful dog that we have ever had. And the kids and I think he's awesome, but he just drives Kelly crazy. And the ironic thing of it all is when we sit down in the living room, guess who Shadow always goes to and wants to sit next to? Kelly. And, and he doesn't just sit like next to her, he sits on her, like on her feet. And she just looks around and, at us and just rolls her eyes. And I've often said, hey, babe, he's just thankful to be alive. I mean, you rescued him. You, you saved him from certain death. He's just, he's just sitting there. He's just wanting to let you know how much he appreciates you for saving him. Well, you know, it's the same with us because we wouldn't be here if it weren't God's grace rescuing us and saving us from certain death. And that's why we will sit at the feet of Jesus for all eternity, praising him and thanking him for our salvation. Revelation chapter 7. Verse nine, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. By the way, we don't have to wait to get to heaven to do that. We can start doing that right now. And so I'm going to invite our worship team to come, and we're going to have an opportunity to sing that song we learned last week, Is He Worthy? And it seems very appropriate for us to praise and thank God and His Son, the Lamb. And as they come, let's just stand and let me pray, and uh, we'll close uh, by singing this song together. Father, we are so grateful for... uh, your salvation. When we consider who we are now in light of who we once were, when we consider what we received, what we have received, in light of what we deserved, our only response should be one of wonder, love, and praise. And so, Lord, I pray we'd never lose our sense of amazement that we've been saved by grace. And I pray that this week would be extra special as we remember Uh, who we are in Christ in light of who we once were in sin. And that it would just fill our hearts with, uh, filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.